Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Welcome back to another edition of the Internet's Most Dangerous Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. It's Wheeler Dealer Radio. We're back for an international week with an all-question-and-answer edition of everyone's favorite Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. I'm your host, Greg, and I'm joined by my two illustrious co-hosts this week, Brian and Ben. Ben, how are you doing? Uh, back on the podcast. Took a break last week because you're too cool for us. How, how are you doing this week? Uh, yeah, I'm finally sobered up after that victory. I went on a week and a half long bender, but uh, I pulled myself together now. Did, and did you kill all the crickets in Atlanta on this bender? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> you're, 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 they're not joining I, us tonight. What's I going have on? Done anything in that week? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm hungover, so I'm sitting inside and not sitting outside getting drunk. So, well, could have gone worse. You could have signed Edison. You could have signed Edison Cavani. So. Uh, next up, we have uh, our illustrious uh, legal counsel. It is Brian Ashlock. Brian, uh, are, you, are you excited for all these questions from our listeners this week? I feel like you ask me some variation of that question every week. Yeah, just say you're geeked with, and let's keep it moving. I know. I have to come up with some new way of saying I, I don't know enough slang words to say how totally tubular and radical these questions <laughs> all are. Um, I can only say the phrase geeked and zooted so many times on a podcast before it starts becoming stupid and meaningless. You're right. We, we would definitely not want this podcast to become stupid or meaningless. So on no, that note... But I mean, look, we're, we're very much committed to diversifying our bits, not doing the same jokes over and over again. And I just think it, for the sake of keeping it fresh, you need to ask me a different question next week. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Tr- truly not being stale is the core bit of Wheel of Dealer Radio. So, on that note, let's move on to our listener questions. Let's start out with, Ben, I think you would be a good one to start with this. This comes from our good friend, Unfit for Purpose. He wants to know, is it time to stop worrying and love Jose Mourinho? No. I mean, well, <laughs> it's never it's never time to stop worrying. Whoever the manager is, you're a Spurs fan, like, you know better than that. But, and I, I feel like I've just had such... I mean, anybody who's listened to the show has noticed I've had just severe whiplash. Every result, every performance, it's like, is this when we finally figured it out? Are we turning it around? And then, lo and behold, no. Um, you know, but this time, <laughs> maybe it is. Um, you know, it does feel like things are different this time. <laughs> and, you know, there is a workable system. The players seem to be clicking in a in a cohesive unit that makes sense um you know adding our adding regulon to serge Aurier and having these you know two flying fullbacks clearly makes a difference kane and son are probably in the form of their lives right now um you know I, there's reasons to be hopeful but i just like i'm perpetually flinchy like anytime jose like moves suddenly you know i'm like afraid i'm gonna get hit because I don't trust him. Because I've seen it before. I know, you know, I know how this has ended so many times before. Yeah, the difference so is I, now we're now we're in the midst of a pandemic, and he can't sell anyone. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's 
you know, being forced to hang on to Ndombele or, or if you choose to believe, you know, being the unbelievable manager and man motivator that he is and transforming a fat, lazy Ndombele into the consummate midfielder, um, you know, I, I'm happy and I'm going to enjoy the ride, but I will never, I will never unclench. <laughs> So I will be tense. So Ben, one thing I'm curious about, since you weren't here last week because you abandoned your uh, brothers in podcasting arms, one thing that felt very different to me about the last week or so of games, and in particular the Chelsea game and the United game, and to a lesser extent the Newcastle game before that, if you want to reach back further in the midst of time, it really felt like we were tactically outsmarting teams or the, the opposition, or at least like setting up with a very coherent plan in a way that I don't feel like we have sort of, I don't want to say never done under Mourinho, but certainly not done on a regular, consistent basis under Mourinho. Um, You know, certainly the, you know, like I said, Chelsea and United are the games I'm really thinking of here, where it really felt like we outsmarted the other team. I'm just curious what you think about that, take because that felt, that's to me what's felt really different about the last week or so of Spurs. It's funny because I would say what's felt different has been like belief and mindset. Ah, and not touching balls. And <laughs> you know, um, no, I'm like I'm only half joking, honestly. Like these are both games that like we fought back from, you know, going down. We've seen this team kind of crumble and fall apart um, in similar situations recently. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Hugo Lloris was yelling at at Sonny um, as we went into halftime and. You know, there definitely does seem to be like a, a sense of togetherness and, again, belief in the squad that, like, hey, maybe we aren't the team that like fell apart for a season and a half. Like, we're actually the team that like was in a Champions League final and challenged for two titles. Like, I think that's definitely like a thing that has happened. Like, it feels like that. Whatever Jose's message is has finally kind of sunk into the players in that respect. Um, but. Yes, to your actual question, I do feel like, you know, the the tactics have felt, again, more coherent and more opponent-specific, um, you know, than this sort of just typical sit-back, you know, hit on the counter, have one conservative fullback, you know, like the, the sort of stylistic elements we've talked about Jose's team. Um, it doesn't feel like that a lot of those have been like the hallmarks of like this, this great week we've just seen. So, uh, yeah, I have no idea what it all means, but I'm excited for it. I think one of the, like the problems with us doing a weekly podcast about one specific team is we often fall into this trap of, you know, blowing hot and cold, given the results of the particular weekend or the midweek games. And I, I know we definitely did that under Pochettino, where you know if we had a win, then like oh, then all we needed was another win the next in the next match to like get some momentum and turn it around, and everything would be saved and everything would be better. And so like I, I'm hesitant for us to do that now with Jose, but this has felt really good the last couple <laughs> of fixtures, and, and you know like like Ben said. 
it's hard because you're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, is this feud with Deli Alley? Like, is that the thing that's going to make us like hate Jose? Or is he going to alienate some other player? Like, is it going to be Toby Alderweireld? Or is he going to continue to play Joe Hart? Um, you know, like what, whatever the case may be, there's still things that you're concerned about. Um, but I think you can overlook a lot of that stuff when you win football matches. And when you win football matches in fun or convincing fashion, um, it makes it even easier. Um, so, so I think that's the that's the thing that Jose has going for him right now. And if we keep winning football matches, it's going to be a lot easier for the rest of us to shut up and love it. Hey, when do, we, we've talked about this on this podcast before. When is Mourinho at his sort of most tolerable or enjoyable? And it's when he's winning and talking cash shit about everybody around him. And it's kind of fun when you're, you know, I think, you know, when you're when you, the fire is not directed inward, when it's pointed out of the house, um, you know, it's a lot more fun. And hopefully, we can keep this up, and it'll keep going. But who the hell knows, Ben? And my problem is like I'm not convinced that like in a week or I guess in three days we're going to see you know Ben Davis back at left back because Regulon needs rest, and you know suddenly we look very different than the team that was kind of flying ben, ben. on cylinders and. You gotta pay attention I'm, to Spurs. You gotta pay attention to Spurs. Gareth Bale's almost match fit. He'll play at left back. <laughs> oh, okay, it's fine then. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is just—it's just so game to game right now because like we don't have like the sample size of like, oh, this is what Jose Mourinho with these players looks like. It's just like, this is what it looked like this week. I hope this is what it looks like next week, and I hope it's what it looks like all season. But. <laughs> Hey, it looked that way for a whole week and a half, Ben. I, clearly, everything is that better. All of our problems are over. It was a surreal, incredible week and a half. So, our next question comes from noted son of Baltimore, John Mioli, or at least resident of Baltimore, John Mioli. He wants to know, how much of the team makeup without Delhi and even Erickson do we think contributes into Kane's recent productivity? to drop deeper and be the playmaker he is. It seems like attacking midfielders who actually play in the midfield have made it easier for him to take that space as opposed to deferring to that role. Uh, Brian, do you want to start with this one? I, I want to hear you try to pronounce proclivity again. Proclivity. You know, you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm a surfer. I'm just a surfer kid from <laughs> California. Just, you know, following in the footsteps of Zach Morris, you know. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, okay, what was the question I really got distracted by? Um, <laughs> so I, I think that obviously that is a contributing factor. But I think that Kane dropping deeper was something that we saw even before um, Erickson fell off and Delhi fell out of favor. Um, you know, this was always something that was kind of in his game. Um, it was something that was in his game from, you know, his, his days in the youth team and he didn't have to do it as much when Delhi and Erickson were in the team because they created an effective link between him, between Kane and midfield, but he was still doing it. Like there were games where we would see him drop into midfield and try to pick up the ball to try to create things and make things happen. And and certainly when we had uh, Son and Lucas playing higher up the pitch, um, he was dropping deeper into midfield to try to create things for them as well. Um, I think the thing that's changed this year is we're actually getting end product from him. We're actually seeing him make 
you know, the final pass to get the assist, which we hadn't seen in years past. Um, so, I mean, to answer the question, it has something to do with it because those guys aren't in the team. It has something to do with it because Harry Kane is kind of the fulcrum of the attack where we're aiming balls at him and then allowing him to lay it off to the faster guys running beyond him. Um, but I just think that this is kind of the type of player that Harry Kane has always been, and we're just now allowing him to do this more. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Kane, you know, if we remember when he was coming up, there was a lot of debate over whether Kane was even a number nine or a number 10 um, and what his best position is. And, you know, I think, he, like Brian said, he's always had that proclivity uh, to drop deep um, and go searching for the ball. But I think part of the problem has been he has been such an important shot getter uh, in the team that, you know, when you when you drop him out of, that area you suddenly have yourself a situation where like yeah he can pass the ball but who's he going to pass the ball to because nobody else is going to do anything with it um and with son playing the way that he is um as as lethally as he's been and as consistent as he's been you know it really and you know it certainly helps the way that we're playing such a counter-attacking system where that final pass of canes is the pass beyond the defense and like it, all Sun has to do is beat the keeper um, on like a lot of these opportunities that he's creating. Um, and it, it definitely feels like a system that is maximizing that skill of Bale's and, or I'm sorry, of Kane's. But, and you have to wonder once Bale comes into the team and he has now two runners running past him, um, you know, how much more effective that's going to be, you know? It, yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting. So the thing is, is like oh. he's not just playing as number ten. He's also still getting tons of shots himself. And like I think that's another thing that's always been an issue with this. It's like either Kane is dropping deep to try and move the ball around, or Kane is standing in the box taking a bunch of shots. And being able to bring both of those halves of his game together for the first time, um, I think is is huge. And I think part of the reason why you didn't get that connection between the two was we often saw him drop deep when he was physically unable to make some of the runs in behind, like when he was coming back from injuries and stuff like that. And so you saw him dropping deeper into midfield to link play or to pick the ball up because he wasn't able to make counterattacking runs or, you know, bust a gut to get into the box. Um, and now it seems like he's actually healthy um, for the first time in a long time. And he's able to do both sides of that for the first time in, you know, what, two seasons, three seasons. So, moving on from Kane, our next question comes from Allie Jamieson, who wants to know, what's the single biggest mistake Pochettino made, and what's the single biggest mistake Daniel Levy has made? I think probably the biggest mistake Dan or, uh, Pochettino made was signing Musa Sissoko, and that might also be the biggest mistake that Daniel Levy has made. Uh, Brian, you want to handle this one? Um, I think... I. I I think you're right in that they're both of their biggest mistakes have to be transfer and signing related. Um, but I think for Pochettino, it's, it's more not having a clear plan or a, a definitive backup plan. Um, when his, primary targets weren't available or weren't reasonable for the club to sign. I, I, I think, Greg, you you and I discussed this last week, or maybe we discussed this earlier in the window. It's been encouraging this summer 
that, you know, we kind of moved down a list. We're like, we needed a striker. Okay, Milik, not reasonable. All right, you know, who, who uh, um, uh, you know, we we didn't get Callum Wilson. We, Ollie Watkins wasn't quite an option. Like, okay, we ended up with Vinicius, and maybe Vinicius was, you know, fourth choice or fifth choice on our list. But our list went, you know, to, to you know, option yeah. D. It wasn't Milik or Bust. Like, it yeah. feels like it's been kind of like that in the past. And, and that's kind of... That, kind of how it always felt under Levy and or excuse me under Pochettino and and the reporting around the Pochettino era was you know that he compiled a list it was a very specific list and those were the players that he wanted and those were the only players that he wanted and then he gave it to Levy and then Levy could either make those signings happen or not um and so so I think with respect to Pochettino it's it's being that blinkered in his approach to the transfer market and then for Levy it's just you know not getting him those players, I guess, or you know, Levy not, not signing it. Really, I joke to Soko, but I think it's Levy's. Honestly, I think you could argue it's been his biggest mistake at Spurs was just not reinforcing or turning over or whatever you want to call it the team for that whole year. Uh, I mean, I think you saw the knock-on effects. It, it, it's been very bad. I mean, maybe we're dragging ourselves out of it. Maybe Mourinho is about to win us some trophies. I don't know, but certainly we've been through a lot of pain over the last two years. Maybe cost ourselves a Champions League final or a Champions League trophy, rather, um, because we just didn't reinforce the squad when the iron was hot. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to call that a mistake because it's, like, it's a, a thing that Levy is still committed to and, like, maybe may finally pay dividends. Who knows? I, I don't think it will, but certainly not in the league title. But, you know, I think if you want to talk about an actual mistake, it's not delegating any transfer responsibility the summer of the stadium opening where we signed absolutely nobody and... You know, say what you will about the plan to, you know, reinvest and, and hang on to that initial squad, um, and and not reinvent refresh the team. You know, that was a plan, and it, maybe it was a bad plan, but it was a plan. That summer was not a plan. That was just a, a catastrophic failure, um, a failure to make a plan. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a plan, but I think it speaks a little bit to what Brian was saying because, like. They, they, they had a deal for Grealish, which fell apart when Villa got some new owners unexpectedly. But it goes back to, and again, maybe Levy's more guilty of this than just Pochettino, but like they didn't have a plan B or C or D, which it felt like we did this window. Um, you know, like, oh, Grealish fell through. All right, I guess we're not going to sign anybody or we're not going to stump up and sign him. I mean, it was, it, yeah, I think any way you slice it, that summer was a huge mistake. And probably Levy's, certainly Levy's biggest mistake at Spurs. It, and I think Ben's right. Um, but, you know, I think you can go even bigger picture in terms of not just delegating, you know, that window, but like Spurs in general, not putting in place the processes and procedures to have like an effective backroom staff that is beyond Daniel Levy does transfer signings. You know, like I, I think we on this podcast have generally been like pro director of football, sporting director, whatever, pro, you know, using data and analytics, pro having a large scouting network. And that just doesn't really feel like how we've done anything. Like we've started to use like 21st club um, recently, but it's just like, you know, the talk, you know, in the years past under Pochettino was basically, you know, smaller backroom staff, less focus on analytics, you know, no director of football, like, like not having that in place while also still being like, 
the fifth or sixth biggest club in terms of finance, finances and revenue seems like a big mistake in hindsight. Well, I think that's that's an interesting thing looking at Spurs from an American perspective because I think from our side of the ocean, we're very used to our teams, no matter what sport it is over here, you know, there's sort of like a front office and then there's the coaching staff, unless you're a Texans fan and you have to deal with Bill O'Brien. But other than that, there's this sort of like separation where there's like a front office of like there's general managers, usually what we call it over here, and they've got like a scouting team and the analytics and whatever, and they're setting targets. And the coach is like involved in those decisions, but mostly they sort of have to make that stuff work. And I think we've seen twice under Pochettino or under uh, Daniel Levy they've had to sort of jettison a lot of that staff because the manager wanted more control. And first it was under Harry Redknapp, and they had to sort of eject a lot of the infrastructure the club had sort of built before that. And then again under Pochettino, where they had to really, like, craft things to fit what he wanted, and he wanted more control. And, again, I'm not, you know, maybe that's warranted. Maybe we need to support him in that way. But it seems like, you know, we're used to this sort of, like, there's a level of continuity that, in a front office staff that extends beyond the manager over here. And that I think that's a much harder thing to establish in England. And I think the fact that Spurs have had a lot of trouble keeping that or building that is a huge problem. Yeah, I would agree that Daniel Levy's biggest failure is the entire way he runs the football operations of the team. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah, put it mildly. Definitely a huge problem for Spurs. <laughs> I don't know about... Pochettino, Ben, do you see a major failure for Pochettino? I mean, what would you, if you had to zero in on something? Uh, Yeah, I would say starting Suzuko in the Champions League final would be uh, (laughs) number one for me. Just losing the Champions League final in general, honestly. Yeah, I think that was a poor decision for Pochettino. He really (laughs) should have done better. I would would have chosen differently, but I'm different, I guess. I mean, I would have lost to Man City in the (laughs) quarters and just avoided the whole thing. Our next question comes from a former uh, guest host on Wheeler Dealer Radio. Uh, that is our friend Vincent. He wants to know, do you get caught up in the punditry's claims of title decider in the fourth or fifth week? If not, do you legitimately get caught up in the title race? Uh, I, I think it's hard to not get... I mean, I don't think I get caught up in the sort of like Sky News, Monday Night Football, kind of like, ooh, our Spurs a title contender, like when Harry Redknapp was saying that on deadline day, but... I'm not going to lie, like, what we did to Man United, you sit there and you think about, like, God, what if Gareth Bale's Gareth Bale again? Like, what could this team do? They look really good right now. And, you know, it's it's just Man United. It's just, you know, Solskjaer is United. It's, you know, okay, we beat Chelsea, but who knows if Lampard is actually a good manager at this point. It, You know, I, I don't get caught up in the discussion personally, but I do certainly get... You know, it's it's when you when you have a run of success like this, it's hard not to dream on it, especially after what Spurs have done the last couple of years, where we've gotten a lot closer to it than we used to. It's also like literally our job to get caught up in that stuff. Like that's the point of this show is to be like, ah, aren't we awesome? We're amazing, guys. Um, so so yeah, that's I, th- that's literally why we're here. Um, and so, yeah, I think you can dream and you can speculate and you can hope about you know a title race. Um, I, I don't know. I th- I, th- I think the fourth or fifth week is early for a club like Spurs to be excited about it. It's early for a club like Everton to be excited about it. But like, if you can't be excited about it 
early in the season when things are going well, when can you be excited yeah, about you, it? You have a, you have a great you have a lot more opportunity to be excited about a title now than you're going to be in April. Like that's yeah. For sure. So like, let's be excited about it now versus in January. We're like, well, maybe we'll finish top five. But and, and I don't if, know. If you can't do it in a week where you have a great result and both of the sort of favorites for the title just completely wet the bed in honestly genuinely spectacular fashion, you know, when can you get sort of worked up about it? So I, I'm not sure I'm taking it super seriously, but it's like, I don't know about you guys, but I certainly like had my moment of like, God, well, if all this stuff lines up, maybe, maybe it can happen for us. I mean, like if I'm Everton fan or an Aston Villa fan, I'm not going to stop talking about the title race, <laughs> you know, until I have to, um, you know, I, for Spurs, like I, not that ridiculous but it's like yeah i mean we we know who the title contenders are at the beginning of the season like we know that and they all look like shit right now so like why would we not be dreaming about a title why would we not think just like the season lester one be like hey you know maybe maybe there's some problems in a lot of these big teams that we didn't anticipate and maybe it is going to be wide open this year and we've got as much a shot as anybody like yes dream about it talk about it and you know what, frankly, like, after the way everyone was rooting against us um, in the season where Leicester won the title, if Spurs win the title this year and inflict a rejuvenated uh, Jose Mourinho on world football, then you know what? Y'all deserved it. Like, fuck you. Like, that's what, the price what you if Everton, What if Everton win the title and we finish second to Everton? Oh, my God. I'm, I'm going to take a very or long walk. Or if finish third with Arsenal somehow beating us to second. Well, I'm not... I don't know about you guys. I'm not too worried about that right now. But, yeah, I'm going to take a very long walk if Everton win the title and we finish second. Our next question comes from Matt Herdlicka. I'm sorry. There's some vowels missing from this. Anyway, um, Ben, he wants to know, if Jose moves past his feud with Delhi, who does he feud with next? I mean, are we counting his feud with Toby that is clearly happening right now. Yeah, well, let's let's. I mean, you can talk about that. We could also move past it down the line. Should really demonstrate the uh, levels of analysis you get on Wheel of Deal Radio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like you know he is at the stage of the Delhi feud where it's oh he's working hard in training. We're ready to bring him back into the team. Whereas Toby has now entered the phase of wait, why isn't this guy starting? Why? Oh, are we rotating him? Nope, he just hasn't been in the squad for like three games in a row. Like, what's going on here? Um, and then we're going to get mysterious rumors about him, you know, not working hard in training or maybe not being fit. Um, you know, so I think Toby is, is next. But who's next after that is is the real question. And I just hope it's somebody terrible. Like, give me give me a few with Lucas or Suzuko. Um, what if it's, you know, what if he's feuding with Sergio? Never. I mean, honestly, that's entirely possible. <laughs> he seems he seems definitely like the kind of guy who would do something like completely reckless and stupid, and Jose would be like, we're done here. No, see, I have a feeling that he's the kind of guy who will just do whatever Mourinho tells him to do, so I actually don't think he's going to feud with him. That's true. If he is a golden retriever, they're very trainable dogs and follow <laughs> exactly. very well, um, despite their abundance of energy. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, part of the reason we've been so good, I think, is is... And Dombele was a guy who we didn't have a lot of alternatives for. We desperately needed a guy in midfield who could pass the ball. Um, whereas Dele, we're kind of seeing, is is not an, an essential figure to the operation of the squad. And feuding with a terrible player, not a terrible player, uh, but a, a not essential player, um, instead of one who is 
essential, uh, is definitely a step in the right direction. So if we can get him moving towards even worse players um, to publicly feud with, I think that's that's really where we need to go. Spurs' title aspirations will truly be realized when Mourinho is feuding with non-essential youth players, like our third goalkeeper on the under-21s team. Yeah, if, if, if Jose wants to have it out with like Alfie Whiteman in the press every week, like, fine. <laughs> Sorry, Alfie. Good luck to you. Our next question, Brian, is for you. It's from Timoteo Casson. He wants to know what you think of international breaks, as we are currently mired in perhaps the least 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 good idea of an international break in history. So, uh, I find international breaks at the best of times to be absolutely horrible. Um, and I mean, you know, I guess maybe that comes from being an American. And, you know, not really caring about the Europa Nations League or not caring about Euro qualifiers and not having my own country qualify for World Cups, you know. So maybe that's part of why. But also just like they seem to always break up like whatever momentum you have built up. They always happen like right at the end of the transfer window. So you're like, oh, we just signed all these guys and now we can kind of put them all together and play and it's like no no they're all going to go away for a week and a half and not train together and it's like i don't know i find them to be stupid um i think if i was like an english fan or uh you know a a fan of a a, a european country that i i cared about um then maybe i'd feel a little bit differently so maybe ben can talk about how it's an important moment for portugal to have caught covid at this time uh but like i I just don't care about them i find them incredibly annoying and like you said it's really irresponsible to be doing them right now especially when we're talking about friendlies like who gives a shit i mean cristiano ronaldo caught covid and that's great and (laughs) portugal finally didn't have to play him because he's cristiano ronaldo and they won three now so you know, thank you for that wonderful segue into something close to my heart, Brian. You're welcome. But it is also fucking insane. Like we were talking the other day about, like, oh, are we? There's a tweet about like Bruno San, uh, Bruno Fernandez. I almost called him Bruno Sanders, like he's the Portuguese <laughs> Bernie Sanders. Uh, Once geez. again, he is asking you to give him penalties. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's talking about like, oh, is so he gonna have to quarantine when he gets back to Man United? And then he fucking played today. Like the entire Portugal team like played a game today despite being in close proximity to somebody who tested positive. And, like, that's not good. Well, and with Bruno, given how stationary he is, he's probably more at risk for COVID than anyone else on that team. So it's a real problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's crazy that you have, especially, you know, I think Nabikita came down with COVID. Oh, and, you hate to see it. You know, but it's like, yeah, like, Africa has largely not had a huge problem with this disease right now. It's like, yeah, let's send a bunch of European-based players down to Africa and uh, spread that shit around. Like, it's yeah, seems the whole fine. thing is just wildly irresponsible. In addition to being, like Brian said, this is a, just a terribly uninteresting like television product. The it's only like, positive thing I can see about international breaks is it is giving us all Spurs fans something unequivocally positive to say about Jose Mourinho, which is we finally have a fucking manager with both the the sway with our players and the desire to get them to stop playing international games when it's a really bad idea for their health. It seems like he might have actually broken through to Harry Kane and told him you don't need to play every single minute possible for, for England. I, I I don't know about you guys. This, this is something that drove me insane under Pochettino is that he seemed to have no either ability or desire, and I honestly don't know which it was, 
to try and limit some of these international minutes, especially when guys are kind of fighting injuries or are injury prone. And this international break, we have a lot of guys who have very quote-unquote injuries, and he's putting very public pressure on Gareth Southgate to not play Kane every minute against a bunch of, like, scrubs. So, you know, if there's one positive we can get out of this particular international window, when we should not be, like, playing these games in all these countries, it is Mourinho is doing something. He is, he is using his, his powers for good in this case, or at least for our benefit. Yeah, I mean, Pochettino would always say, you know, like, oh, it was always a huge honor for me to play for Argentina. I know how important that is for a player. I would never want them to, like, deprive themselves of this. Yeah, fuck you. That's not your job, Mauricio. (laughs) Right. I think there's definitely a benefit of Jose never being a good soccer player. Like, you know, he has no fond memories of being playing for his national team. Like, he's just like, this is bullshit and a waste of my time, and we pay their salaries and, like, get my players home safe. You know, like, best managers have have historically always, like, made their players come down with a case of internationalitis. Like, you know, Fergie was notorious for it. It was, It's, like, it's just part of the game. Um, so now the hope is with guys like Pep and, and Lampard and Solskjaer, you know, all these ex-pros now managing big sides, hopefully they stop uh, forcing their players to miss international games because they also understand, you know, the honor and pride of representing your country. And, you know... B-Squad Jose can <laughs> finally shine. Our next question comes from David Sepperson, who wants to know uh, if Kin Min Jae or Joe Rodon has a higher upside. Well, the thing about Joe is he is a potentially homegrown player. He is a big, tall lad who just excels at being in the air and doing lots of traditional English things, but apparently can also play the ball. Very highly rated uh Prospect in a league which you know has some certain level has a certain level of promise, um, you know. And uh, Kim plays in uh, China, which makes me a little dubious. But his nickname is Monster, and Joe's name is Joe. So I think uh, Kim has the higher upside here. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this, but I think it's pretty clear cut. No, I think you summarized it. I mean, one of them is a character in the football remake of Space Jam, and one of them, like you said, Joe. So, you yeah. know, he's a guy that you meet down at the pub that's just tall, and everyone's like, oh, do you play soccer? And he's like, well, you know, a little bit. I mean, his last name is almost like a Godzilla character. Yeah, but, like, it's, it's, but it's not. It's, it's not Monster. <laughs> like, come on. I mean, look, yeah, I think it's ridiculous for anybody to – like pretend to have an opinion on this. Nobody's fucking watching like the Chinese league. Like I have no, I have no idea. I watched YouTube highlight videos on both of them. It both seem fine. Like, his, I don't... his his name is Monster Ben. Yeah, Monster. Our next question comes from another former guest on our podcast. It comes from Willie. He wants to know where our LinkedIn accounts are. I mean, mine's literally right on LinkedIn. You can find it if you just search my name. Yep, LinkedIn. Brett Rainbow. Yeah, Brett Rainbow. Mine too. That's weird. That's a weird coincidence. Yeah, it is. See, but I use I use a capital I in Rainbow to differentiate me from the other Brett Rainbows. Mm. Mm. I use a zero instead of an O. Uh, that's even better. Even yeah. better. Yeah. Ben, do you have any thoughts on LinkedIn? <laughs> yeah, apparently only the only people who are asking us questions are our contacts on LinkedIn. You <laughs> bits that we do every fucking week. Like, that's that's what LinkedIn is for. It's about connecting with your colleagues, Ben. Come on. 
This is bleak. This is, uh, being reduced to this is bleak. I'm Speaking of contacts from uh, LinkedIn, um, Reno Wallabout, notorious internet terrorist and not podcaster, wants to know, uh, is the current squad better top to bottom than Pete Pochettino Spurs? He is saying that is 2016-2017. Brian? Yeah, 100%. This squad has Gareth Bale. And so, <laughs> obviously, obviously is better. Uh, you know, I think... I... I Yes, I think it is. I think the only areas where you're looking at the Pochettino Spurs team as being possibly better is, you know, how do you evaluate Musa Dembele versus Lo Celso or Ndombele? And how do you evaluate, like, peak Alderweireld and Vertonghen versus the current center backs? I, I think you're being a little unkind to that Pochettino team. I think that whole back line is, I mean, again, we're... How many games into the season? This has been a lot of turnover on this club. Maybe it'll turn out differently, but like peak Vertonghen and Alderweireld was like the best center back pairing in the Premier League. I think you can argue that Walker and Rose at their peak were the best fullbacks in the Premier yeah, League. Yeah, I don't think you have to argue. I think it was a known fact. That yeah, we had the two best. So that back line is undoubtedly superior to what we have now. Even though I think what we have now is exciting and interesting. And then you get in that midfield, and I think Lacelso is a great player. I'm very excited about him. He's certainly not as established as Musa Dembele was in 2016-2017. I mean, I think there's potential this team could be better than that team, but right now, no. I think that I think peak Pochettino Spurs. I mean, Christian Eriksen was still firing back then. That's peak Harry Kane, as good as Kane has been over the last few games. I mean, that was extraordinary what we were getting from him. I mean. I'm blanking. Ben was this? I mean, was Son integrated into the team by then? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of. I always lose track of exactly when he got integrated into the team. But there was maybe not as depth, as much depth up front. But other than that, I think I, I would lean towards Pochettino Spurs or that, that peak Pochettino Spurs. I mean, I think you know, it's a, it's a question of how we're framing it. Is is it about the squad? Uh, yes, I think this squad is just the deepest I've I've seen it at Spurs. Like we have. Just a lot of talent um, all over the pitch. Um, we have lots of good backups, a lot of rotation options. You know, the way we were able to kind of just swap teams, you know, in and out over the last couple of weeks as as the fixtures piled up was was pretty remarkable. And, and we haven't even fully integrated all of our players yet, so that's right. yeah. So I think you know, in terms of like overall squad strength from like a twenty five man roster. I would say this is better. Uh, but, yeah, I think there's a lot of questions about the first 11, like especially the back line and defensive midfield. Um, you know, I like Hoybier. I think he's been really great so far, and certainly I think it exceeded some of our expectations. Um, but Peak Dyer and Wanyama in midfield were, like, very good defensive midfielders, very good at breaking up play and, um, you know, limiting chances. Dembele was such a two-way player in midfield that, as good as Los Celso and Ndombele are at what they do, it's 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 just different, you know. And the tactics were just so coherent, and everybody was playing their role. But Delhi um, was firing back then too. That's another thing, guy. I forgot. Like it, yeah. it was, yeah. Everybody was just hitting their stride. Right. Every all these guys were at the peak of their power. And now we may say at the end of the season when we win the league, like, well, obviously this is the superior game. <laughs> but I think right now it's like there's enough question marks over, you know, Harry Kane's fitness, Gareth Bale's fitness. Um, you know, we're still playing Eric Dyer and Davinson Sanchez at center back. Like that is probably going to lead to some shitty goals against us. What you know, compared to a team that 
you know, I think conceded like five goals at home all season or something ridiculous. Like, it, yeah, I, I, I have a tough time comparing it, especially at this early stage. But I, I definitely think the squad is better. I think the thing that both of you are forgetting is that this team currently has Gareth Bale. And that 2016-17 team did not. And so, ipso facto, this but, one's better. But, Brian, you're, you're ignoring the questions about his fitness, which are, is Gareth Bale going to be the greatest attacker in the Premier League or merely a great attacker in the Premier League? It's, you know, I mean, who can say? Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I, I think that it doesn't really matter because just his presence and his influence <laughs> upon and his hair. the... Yeah. On the, on the other members of the squad, such as, you know, I don't know, young Jack Clark, for example, um, <laughs> is going to be irreplaceable. Um, and, you know, we all know that already that he's such a huge inspiration to Sergio. And um, so I, I, I think just Gareth Bale's presence and aura obviously makes this team better, not taking into account his obviously immense attacking output. So our next question comes from an old school listener. Uh, Tottenham makes me cry. He wants to know, in the spirit of Derby Week, which West Ham last second goal is your favorite? Uh, I think there's really only two to choose from here, but it's hard to pick between either of them. Uh, ben, do you have? Let's start with you. Do you have? Do you, what is your favorite last second West Ham goal? It's not hard at all. There's one answer, and it's Paul Stalteri in the 4-3. It's the only answer. It's okay. the most incredible game of football ever. It was the best ending to a game ever. No, that's great. I, I, I don't want to take away from it. It's certainly the best like the best call I've heard an announcer do over a Spurs game, which is actually saying something. But his sort of like horror as Jermaine Defoe seals West Ham's relegation, or just about, um, is pretty incredible to listen to. But I think we can't let Gareth Bale's just utter embarrassment, the, the, the capstone to his utter embarrassment of West Ham, like go without at least an honorable mention. Which is, I mean, that is an incredible goal. And in terms of, I, I don't know which is more demoralizing, actually. Probably the Stalteri goal. But, like, that must have been awful to watch as a West Ham fan. So, uh, you know, Tom Carroll to Gareth Bale is just a combination that will live on in Spurs history, and I think it can't pass without at least an honorable mention. It was it was pretty spectacular. The real crime is that Tom Carroll was a free agent this summer, and if we're already bringing Bale back, like how do you not bring back the guy? Tottenham are trimming, Tottenham are trimming wages. <laughs> they can't afford they can't afford to hire security around them in case certain fans from a certain other continent are following him around. You know, they've got to be sensible. They've got to be fiscally responsible. Then, wow. Mm. Brian, you haven't waited. Yeah, I mean, yet. is there a, is there a third choice? I so I was I looking because I well, I wanted I actually, to be able. I saw Kane score a like convert they save into a last minute penalty, which I enjoyed watching. But we only drew that game, so. Um, but I can't think of another no, notable one. We we won that game. The you're thinking of where Kane scores in the 89th and 90th minute against West Ham, and the but the 90th minute one is a penalty, which is. It was 2-2. I'm thinking of a 2-2. That we, it was in Pochettino's first year. Mm, okay, this is this is 3-2 in 2016. Wink scored a goal, which is weird. Um, oh, that was Kane his first had, game. That was his, or, like the first goal he scored for Spurs. 
Yeah, and then and then Harry Kane scores in the 89th and 90th minute. I literally remember nothing about this game. Ben is 100% right. I remember the Paul Stalteri goal very vividly. Um, I don't really remember Bale's goal. I just remember the assist. Um, I remember how amazing the pass was. I don't remember. I couldn't tell you where the shot went or what happened or anything, but I just remember how crisp that like three-yard pass from Tom Carroll was. So, so I think it's got to be the Stalteri goal. Yeah, the Stalteri goal is like, I will remember that until the day I die. Like, You'll remember the Bale just... goal until the day you die. The, the difference is, Stalteri will... literally murdered West Ham in the last possible second of the game. Yeah, I mean, like, when I think of Gareth Bale goals, the West Ham goal is like, oh yeah, that was another Gareth Bale highlight. Like, it's not even like my what? top five. What? It's like, after, like, the, like, the, like if you're not talking about a goal against Inter Milan, that's like the first goal I think of. Right, well, there were three goals against Inter Milan, so <laughs> let's, that's that's one, two, and three. I, I think you guys uh, are giving yeah, very like short shrift to Gareth Bales. Norwich, that, like, goal against uh, Stoke where his leg was, like, fucking horizontal. Um, his goal for Real Madrid where he dribbled outside the no, pitch. No, okay, we're talking, we're talking about Spurs goals. We're talking about Spurs I know, I'm just saying, I will think of that Gareth Bale goal before I think of the West Ham goal. You, that, is, that, goal. Is, that is fucking disingenuous bull, hipster bullshit. That, that Gareth Bale goal is iconic against West Ham. Let's not give this any sort of short shrift on this podcast. It's good. I'm just, it's not in the fucking ballpark. Oh my god. God. You're a new fan. You weren't there for the four three, so you probably don't have like, the same visceral memory oh like the rest God. of us do. Uh, such a yeah. good that uh, I. I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm just saying the fact that you guys are just erasing Gareth Bale's West Ham destruction is the you know, the very first Spurs shirt I bought was a, a tribute to that game. It was just like it said like Spurs four, West Ham three, or and it said we're forever bursting bubbles on it. And it and it may be my first like real life Tottenham Hotspur fan because I wore it to a party in college and somebody goes, Are you a Spurs fan? And then we became lifelong friends. So you know. That's how you met Tony Roma? Yeah, basically. <laughs> Uh, our next question comes from Ken. He wants to know if everyone is fully healthy, which is a big old caveat. Will Jose play a Hoiberg, Gio, and Tongai midfield this year? I, I Sure. I think there's going to be so much rotation and injury this year. It's it's a toss-up, but I'm sure we'll see that. That's that's very confident. Yeah, I guess. Like, There's a lot of guys who get injured. So, I mean, I think we've got to see that for... Uh, a big game like have we have we actually even really seen that for 90 minutes at no, or even 60 minutes well Celso's gotten hurt enough that we haven't seen it and Ndombele was like easing his way back into the squad so we certainly haven't seen it for 90 yeah so I mean I, I think that's what we would all like to see um, but I, I do think Jose does kind of see the midfield as Hoybeard plus one of Tangi and Lacelso plus like Sissoko, and, and, and you know whether that's good or bad. Like it worked against United, that's fine. But so so I don't know if that's something that Jose will do. It's certainly like I said, it's what we all want to see. Um, but I don't I don't know how many minutes we'll see with those three actually all on the pitch together. I mean, Sissoko was bad enough against United that it was honestly like playing 10 on 10 for most of that game. Uh, I, I can't imagine Jose would not like to get all... Like, yeah, you're right. So far, we've seen them be like 
halftime subs for each other or you know they take turns playing matches when it's been very frustrating but i mean again i just there's no reason to believe that like suzoko adds something more to the pitch than los celso does in any context i mean he's just not as good defensively not as good on the ball doesn't work as hard like he's just no that's what I'll say that's the one thing that Sissoko does have. He works very hard. He runs and, around a lot. <laughs> like, but honestly, like the Sissoko of the, like lately does not look like the ninety-minute machine that that he has been. He looks like he has kind of like lost some of that unflappable, unstoppable energy. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, is... remember the United game from Project Restart when we were like, oh, everybody else looks like. I can say Project Restart. Don't roll your eyes at me. Yeah, uh, I know. You've been doing it on this fucking podcast for like three months now. You started doing it anyway. Uh, anyway, the point is is that remember that United game where he looked like the most healthy guy on the pitch and was like he was running everywhere all throughout the game, even when everybody else looked out of it. And so, like, I, I'm with Greg on this. Like, that's the the work rate and the running are the things that like Sissoko is actually good at. Like uh, the actual s- end product, the dribbling, the passing, kicking, like those things also bad. But like the running and the trying, very good. The the story to me of the whole Amazon documentary was watching getting a little bit of glimpse into Mourinho experiencing what I feel like every manager Sissoko's ever had is experienced. Like your first impression is like Christ, what a donkey. Like, why is he on this team? He sucks. Get him out of here. And then they watch him in training or enough matches where they're like, God, he's really fit. Like, that guy never gets tired. And they get just more and more impressed with him because he just keeps running and never gets injured. And I don't know. I'll never count out a manager just being very impressed by Musa Soko's ability to, like, run a lot. Now, maybe that's fading, but I'll never count Mourinho... You know, Mourinho values, like, guys who can run a lot too much to, like, completely discount him. I mean, fine. Suzuko runs a lot. Like, he doesn't track back well. (laughs) He doesn't cover space at all. Like, Los Celso also works really hard. Like, have you not seen Los Celso play? He's all over the fucking pitch. Like, he is an intensely hardworking player. And actually runs to places that are like, no, he's useful. like Eric And then when Lamella. he gets there, he does a useful thing. He's like, like Eric Lamella if he was much better at passing. I mean... It's, it's just... There's no reason to ever put Suzuki on the pitch. Get them all on the pitch together. It's... I don't know. We're, we're kind of off the point of the question is, will it happen? Who the fuck knows? But... We all know it should. So, Dire Straits, uh, bringing us back to uh, West Ham. Uh, dire Straits has a question, which is... With it being West Ham's Cup final this week, uh, what is Jack Wilshere's next move now that he's no longer employed by West Ham United? I, I think DJ is the obvious answer here. Uh, lasagna chef at a hotel somewhere. No, dirtbag DJ at a, at a middling club. I think that's just you know it fits his look, it fits his lifestyle. He can smoke a lot. You know, I, I just think that's the obvious answer here. So, Craig, this may have been before your time, but there was a. Famous game in about 2005-2006 where Spurs Fuck you. were fed a dodgy lasagna. Yeah, Jack Wilshere was like two. Ryan is implying that Jack uh, Wilshere's future job is poisoning the team. Yeah, I'm saying Jack Wilshere looks like a scumbag DJ. All right, You guys could at least like roll with this for at least a little bit, but apparently I mean, not. Does he look like a scumbag? He looks like a proud boy, honestly, as opposed to, I think. He doesn't have enough hair for that. Yeah, I mean, he definitely looks like he like listens to a lot of EDM. Like, I I, I respect that that call. But... 
I mean, I'm Ben giving Greg begrudging respect. I guess that's fine. He's the Suzuko of the podcast. What can I say? Yeah, he works hard, I guess. (laughs) Logan (laughs) Fox. Just to make sure he got it right. Let's just just move on. Logan Foxhoven wants to know, who would win more with this current squad? uh, Mourinho or Pochettino? I... I mean, not like latter stages, I don't give a fuck, Pochino, but I would really be interested to see if, like, what a, a more motivated Pochettino would do with this particular team. Because there's a lot of fun players, a lot of whom I think suit Pochettino on this team. And, I mean, you know, he's got, I mean, he's got, like, two real frisky fullbacks again. You know, there's a hell of a midfield there if everybody's healthy. Ah, you know, it's always a shame Pochettino couldn't stick it out because I think we built a roster that he could have a lot of fun with. I think the question of, you know, who would win win more and and Pochettino being involved is just automatically dumb because Pochettino's never won anything. Uh, <laughs> literally zero trophies. Um, Jose Mourinho has like 80 billion. Um, and so if I've learned anything from Twitter and, you know, from some of our other podcasting friends, what I have learned is that you always go with the guy who actually wins trophies. And you don't pine for the good old days. So definitely <laughs> Jose Mourinho, and he would definitely win more because, I don't know, he's actually won some things at some point. Look, Brian, past success is <laughs> no predictor. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you're right. Pochino has won nothing. Like, he's a total washed-up garbage manager. Oh, uh, Jesus Christ. No, I mean, like, the reason he didn't win any trophies is because we didn't buy him any players for many years. And uh, now that we have a full squad, you know, it, it certainly makes you wonder. Um, imagine going into the Champions League final with uh, not Fernando Llorente and, and Lucas Mora as, like, your only two fit attackers um, because Harry Kane was broken. And, uh, you know, not having to play a midfield of, of Harry Winks and Musa Sissoko, like... You know, there's, this squad probably could have won that trophy. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't believe in anybody right <laughs> right now. Well, we're never going to win another trophy. It's going to be like when we rehire Juan de Ramos in five years. It's just convinced that like he's the only person who has the magic to, to get the best out of this team. Finally, Juan de bring us to the, to the ketchupless glory that he always promised. Um... Trayton Miller wants to know who is the worst player you would accept in a one-to-one swap for Deli Alley, and for me the answer is Musa Dembele. I mean, is Musa Dembele that bad though? <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's pretty old. He's in China. Like, worst play. I mean, look, my my stance on Deli Alley has been made clear. I think he's a luxury player, and I'm not going to be that broken up if he leaves. So, um, I don't know, Edison Cavani. Ooh, Brian. Ugh. Like I, I don't know. Uh, Gonzalo Higuain. We can trade Delhi to Inter Miami. Well, pound for pound, you're getting a lot of you're, you're getting your money's worth there. Getting a lot, yeah. Ben, why is it uh, Almiron uh, from Newcastle? Uh, because he's obviously not the worst player I would take for Delhi. Oh, is he? Is it? Almiron is incredible. Uh, talk about hard working, boy. I think he doesn't stop. Oompa Loompas are known for their industriousness. I, uh, Oompa Loompas? He's not an Oompa Loompa. Oh, like oh a, really? 
It's like a gecko or one of those lizards that runs on water. He's not an Oompa Loompa. Okay, okay. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I still don't want to get rid of Deli. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't answer this question with my whole heart. Um, MK asks, what injury would be most devastating to the club? Uh, Daniel Levy having a stroke. <laughs> what is... <laughs> I don't know. No cheese room. Like overall, no cheese room. Yeah, no party. You guys just spent like a half an hour earlier complaining about how he ran the entire football operations of this team. Uh, <laughs> I think it's Lo Celso. I think if Lo Celso had like a serious can't play for several months injury, that would be a big fucking problem for Spurs. I mean, unless unless Vinicius is like unbelievable, it's it's Harry Kane. The answer is always going to be Harry Kane. It's just nobody's on it. I mean, you know, maybe muddle through because Gareth Bale is actually amazing and, and Hungman's son um, keeps this up all season and, you know, we don't need Kane anymore. But I, I am highly skeptical of that. I mean, the story of this team over the past five years has been as Kane goes, so Spurs, Spurs goes. Um, I think my other answer is Hoiberg. Um, I don't think he's the best or second best or third best player on the team but it's that's the position we have frightening little depth and you know he goes down it seems like we're right back to a Winks Suzoko plus plus one good midfielder um away from that's what our midfield looks like and that I think is a, a catastrophe yeah uh, I I think that's absolutely right and I mean I find it a little bit offensive that you don't already know that Gareth Bale will be amazing and will be able to cover for Harry Kane but it's fine it's fine um, we'll get there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's Hoiberg in terms of like his actual importance to the team. Like he's given us the platform to, to, to do all of the stuff that Mourinho has been doing in these last couple weeks. Um, and, and without him in the lineup, like Ben said, you're back to Winks, Sissoko, or, you know, playing Ndombele as a more defensive midfielder, playing Lo Celso in a more defensive role. And that's really not going to allow you to do all the stuff we've done tactically. And, and it's just, uh, it, it's going to be the most hurtful to the way we're playing. So to answer your previous question, the worst player I'd trade Deli Ali for is literally any other defensive midfielder. <laughs> so Victor Wanyama is the answer to this question. <laughs> All right, let's not get carried away. Oriel <laughs> Romeu from Southampton. Oof. Ugh. <laughs> um, Tim Tosige, uh wants to know, as someone who became a fan during the Bale Modric era of 2010-2012, what are some historic Tottenham moments that newish fans should familiarize themselves with? I mean... The Stalteri goal, I think, is obvious. <laughs> um, uh, you know, in re- I mean, there's some obvious ones you can go back in history. You know, the Gascoigne free kick against Arsenal in 91. The Ricky Villa goal at Wembley. Uh, you know, but in more recent history, I think it's that goal against West Ham. It's just, you know, just an incredible moment for Spurs. As older tenured fans, Ben, let's start with you. As, as, as fans with more tenure than I am, because I, I am with Tim here. I, I became a fan... In this period, do you, do you have any moments you'd recommend? Uh, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite games is you know, is is the game that I realized I was a Spurs fan from that season was the uh, it was Spurs two one against Chelsea. Um, it was the first time we had beaten Chelsea in like almost twenty years. Um, it features a lot of great moments. Uh, it has that lovely King tackle on Arjen Robin that's amazing. Um, John Terry got a red card. 
Aaron Lennon scored the winner. Uh, a lot of a lot of fun moments. Um, I, the five one against Arsenal on ro- on the road to our last trophy um, in the Carling Cup is another I think obvious. Yeah, that highlight. was the highlights of that game were a big reason I became a Spurs fan. So like I mean they were very exciting highlights to watch. So like the first time again the first time we beat Arsenal in like fifteen years or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, I mean so if depending on what the timing is, as you say eleven twelve. Because yeah. that Giants Awakening, uh, yeah, 11, yeah. So that's the Giants Awakening period, video, yeah. like that season we first called over the Champions League. There's so much. I mean, the nine-one against Wigan, um, Bale beating both Arsenal and Chelsea down the stretch, um, Crouch goal against City. Yeah, like that's not necessarily like the best game to watch, but like certainly like an incredible moment. One of one of the moments um, of 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 our history for sure. Um, I mean, I I would just like point to like the 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 entire like Berbatov Keane seasons, like those were just, that was just fun football from Tottenham. Like, um, you know, uh, like Ben already said, the nine one, the 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 match where we actually win the Carlin Cup against Chelsea. Like that's a good one. Um, meh. Come on, it's not that exciting. Well, I actually think I actually think a Spurs fan could do worse than watching the sort of business end of our of our League Cup run in two thousand eight. What was it, two thousand eight, two thousand nine? Like, I think you could do a lot worse than watching that because the thing that's nice about that that I've sort of caught up on in retrospect, we have to run through some very good teams to win that competition. It's like you know, obviously we beat Arsenal in the semifinal, we beat Chelsea in the final. I mean. The Arsenal game is spe- the Arsenal. I guess there's two of them. There's two Arsenal games. They're both spectacular to watch if you're a Spurs fan, particularly the five-one. But you know, even though it's not the best game you'll ever watch, watching us beat Chelsea in a cup final is pretty fucking fun. So, yeah, and I mean, you know, um, yeah, the David Bentley goal against Arsenal is a fun like little moment, even though that game uh, itself is not great. The four-four. No, that's a four-four. That's a great game. I thought that one was. No, you're right. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. But yeah, that that's a good game. Like that goal, the 45 yard. Honestly, ball any of our victories over Arsenal over the last like however many years have been all very fun. But yeah, most of the been... really fun ones have been in the period he's been a fan because they they start getting a lot more regular starting in 2010. So yeah, that's fair. Which is great. We're very spoiled. If you're a more recent Spurs fan, like we are, like I mean, you're very spoiled in terms of how we've played against Arsenal. So. Yeah, I mean, definitely don't really watch a lot, you know, pre-Martin Yole. Like, that's not... Or at least, like, you've got to go back pretty far to get... you, you got to go back to the early 90s to get to the good stuff, minus, like, some Ginola highlights or something. Like, you got to start yeah. getting back in the mist of time to find the better stuff after pre-Martin Yole. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are some famous wins that I I can't think of from, from those eras where, you know, despite being terrible... We, we had a good win. But honestly, like, a lot of my mem- memories of being an early fan is like, oh, this is the first time we've beaten Man U in 35 years. This is the first time we've beaten Chelsea in 27. It's like, there was just so many of those fucking games that was just like, God, did we ever win? <laughs> like, what was this team? Well, there's this great call, and it was like a highlights video. And again, it's the video that really, it was really fun to watch when I was just getting familiar with the team, where they... They talk about how long it's been since we beat Arsenal, and it's like it's so it's just kind of incredible to like listen to it because you know like you know in American sports we play these teams so often that it's like okay well you know even if you suck you kind of end up beating them every couple of years but 
you know, it was something like eight years, five months, six weeks in a day or something, something ridiculous like that. But since we beat Arsenal and like, I mean, I can't imagine how miserable that would make me now if it took us that long to beat Arsenal again. Anyway. Meh, meh. Our final question of the night comes from Zach Attack, who wants to know, what appeals to you most about the European football club model that our American sports leagues fail at? Um, I'll take this first before I kick it off. The thing that appeals to me, and this might be cheating a little bit, is the variety of leagues. I find that really fun. There's a lot of things to like about sort of how soccer is played in Europe, the community involvement. It kind of mimics what we have in college sports in America. But I really like the fact that there's all these different leagues with different cultures and different identities that, you know, can seem exotic or different. And, you know, it's just kind of... Again, it kind of mimics college football in America where you've got these different conferences that have different identities. And... You know, it's not, you know, over here, our professional leagues, they're, they're much more monoliths than you have sort of with soccer in Europe where you've got, you know, like, oh, the German league plays, you know, is, is the German league has a certain flavor and the English league is like this and the Spanish league is a little different. And, you know, th- that's what I find most appealing about, the sort of variety of it. But, Brian? Uh, I think the thing that I like most about it is that there's, like, actual stakes for being bad. You know, like if you're poorly run or you are, uh, you don't sign good players, like you run a risk of, you know, getting kicked out of your league or even going bankrupt. Like American sports teams don't go bankrupt. Like the league has revenue sharing in such a way that like that's not ever a threat and you can tank to get good draft picks and you can immediately become a contender. And like, I understand that parity is great and like it's something that like, you know, would it be cool if Norwich could contend for a Premier League title just because they got, like, the pick of the Academy kids? Yeah, but you know what else would be cool is if, like, there were real stakes for these clubs to be, you know, like teams like, I don't know, the Cleveland Browns to be run in a way that made sense and not just go 2-14 and 14 for, you know, five years in a row absolutely the worst take of all of your many bad takes. No, really? All right. Uh, I really wasn't prepared. I'm honestly, really for like... someone who's got so little investment in American sports, I'm kind of surprised to hear that from you, Ben. I mean, relegation is awful. Like, it, you know, you don't... There's no reason to play terrible football unless you're just trying to survive relegation. Like, if there are no consequences, then there's no incentive to play the most boring style of football imaginable. Um, You know, watching a a bad club owner take charge of a team and, like, steer them into oblivion is fucking terrible. Like, that's a terrible thing. Like, there are bad owners in American sports who, like, yeah, they play terrible teams, they don't invest in the the squad, uh, they don't hire good managers, they don't... They don't run their team well, and there's no consequences for it, and that sucks. But, like, if you're a fan of that team, that's a much better alternative than, oh, uh, we got bought out by some weird conglomerate, and now we're playing three divisions down the table, and uh, I used to get to watch my team play Premier League football every week, and now I don't. Through no fault of my own, just because some, like, shady, unscrupulous asshole, like, took it over. Like, that's terrible. Um, That said... The promotion aspect is really fun, and I know you don't get the one without the other. But like having like new teams come through every every season is fun. Um, you know the financial ramifications of like the league structure, I think, is is dreadful. And I think there's probably a way to preserve promotion and relegation with better revenue sharing. Um, you know, there's maybe a, a, another project we could <laughs> we could talk about that that gives the big six um, 
you know, control over the league and, and bails out everybody else. Um, I'm kidding. That's a terrible plan. Um, anyway, my actual answer is cups. I love cups. Cups are great. European trophies, league, domestic league trophies. I think it's all awesome. I love that there are multiple things that people can like get invested in across the season. I love that a random bullshit team can walk away from, you know, beating Arsenal in a cup final. And now Birmingham city has like a trophy for their trophy cabinet. And like, I think that's super fun. Uh, yeah, it would be cool if like the NBA had like an in-season cup tournament, like just single elimination, like the NCAA basketball tournament. And it's just like, all right, yeah, we're doing this also at the same time as we're playing the regular season. Right. Like everybody loves March Madness in America. Everybody loves like people like the World Cup. People like knockout tournaments. Like it seems like a no brainer. Like why? Why not do more knockout tournaments? They're fun as shit. Well, you're in this like, weird situation where it's all about cultural norms because you have you know, the, the thing that's cool about the FA Cup or whatever, it's been going on forever. And, like, back in the day, it actually, you know, like, weird teams would win it um, more often than not, or at least occasionally, occasionally enough to make it a real thing. And even though that doesn't really happen much anymore, like, it's still, there's still enough volatility and it's enough of a tradition that it's this cool thing that happens. And it's not the kind of thing that you could just... It's kind of like playoffs in European sports. If it's something they'd done forever, it would be like a tradition and a very cool thing. But in America, we just we couldn't institute, you know, at least in a non-soccer sport, we couldn't institute, you know, oh, the NBA is just going to have like a League Cup or the FA Cup of equivalent, you know, just because it's not something we've done and there's nothing to differentiate it at this point. So, Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, when you don't have like a whole football pyramid, or mm-hmm. multiple like continental teams that you're playing against in the like, European trophy. Like, it's strange how much that pyramid like enhances the competition when it like you know like what's the most exotic team that's won an FA Cup in the recent memory? Like Wigan, which is still a top flight team. Like you know, it's 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 interesting because you're absolutely right. The, the pyramid is what makes it interesting, and yet it's always one of the best teams that ends up winning it. But it would still be kind of like weird if Tottenham won an FA Cup. Yeah, it's about the journey, not the destination. You yeah. know, it's UMBC knocking out uh, <laughs> uh, Virginia. Not, Virginia, yeah, there you go. He got there not, uh You know, it doesn't matter that they didn't win the thing. Yeah, I guess. I are, you, are you saying it's the magic of the cup, Ben? Is that is that what? I, I literally did say it's the magic <laughs> of the cup. Yeah, so that to me is my, my favorite thing. And so, yeah, whenever people say, like, oh, I don't want to be in the Europa League, I get super, super salty about that because to me that's – some of the most fun shit that no, happens. Well, the Europa League is kind of like different in that, like, it's all about actually winning the fucking thing because that's like what's super fun. Like, journey there is a fucking slog, and you know, it takes you through like outer Moldovia or whatever. I mean, I don't like. I I didn't hate like spending a Thursday afternoon watching a, a live stream that like couldn't keep a satellite connection as we played a terrible match against the Bulgarian side that ended with a red card that nobody got to watch. Like, that shit's amazing to me. Like, I know. <laughs> It wasn't like great soccer. I know I barely even got to watch it, but like I love that that happened. And like, but see, the important thing is my son really likes the "Oh What a Night" song, and you know I feel a little wrong singing it to him when we're not actually playing on a Tuesday night. So, Spurs get back in the Champions Champions League. League Is better. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Just saying, the Europa League has its fucking charm. It does. It does. I guess I think that would be one other thing. Is like the 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 supporter culture around European football in that, like, I guess we're seeing it more in 
in MLS and some of the newer clubs, like you saw, kind of Atlanta has, um, you know, the, the big supporter section where you have a lot of standing and singing and, you know, all that sort of stuff, and TIFOs and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I do very much enjoy how, not necessarily the Premier League, but in other European leagues, you have this, you know, vibrant supporter culture where, you know, like, especially in Germany, where, you know, they stand and they sing. And I like the Eastern European games where there's fireworks and flares in the stands. And Riots. Like, and... I, like it. I like it better. So, and, yeah, so violence. thing about football is the ruthless boot of capitalism grinding down poorly run teams yeah. and far-right ultra groups. <laughs> yes, <laughs> basically. So what you're saying is you're rooting for West Ham this weekend. <laughs> Honestly, yes, 100%. So, um, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious, is, uh, Ben, I know you like some of the sport culture stuff, too, but I'm, I'm you guys went to SEC schools, and I always think a very good comp for soccer in Amer- from an American perspective is college football. Okay, Brian sort of went to an SEC Brian school. Didn't go to, Brian went to a school that became an SEC okay. school. Yeah, it, was, so, it was a big 12 school while I was there. So, but my yeah. point is, like, I think in a lot of ways the closest thing you get in America to the experience of sort of the, Europe, the European soccer supporter culture is college football because it's more community-based. There is a real, even though it is highly sort of monetized and corporatized, and there's a real sort of community culture-based culture there where you know, especially you're talking about, like, you know, you look at a school like Georgia or um, Missouri, in your case, Brian. Like, these are, especially locally, these are, like, huge institutions and communities that, like, otherwise, without these sort of colleges, like, could not support these le- these sort of, like, sports teams that are on primetime television or, in your case, noon on a Saturday television, Brian. Um, but, you know, like, very large, nationally sort of followed sporting programs and... I'm just curious, like, for me, I went to a D3 school that didn't even have a fucking football team, uh, you know, like, for our European listeners, that's just, they did not have a lot of athletics at my school, so it's much more exotic to me, even Nerds. though, like, well, yeah, but even though, like, I grew up in Maryland, I follow the Terps, and they're a big basketball school, and I've gone to games and stuff, I didn't go to that school, so I never had that kind of, like, support, I wasn't in the stands, jumping, the student section, jumping around like I'm sure you guys were, so does it seem as exotic to you guys, or at least as exciting, given that you had a similar-ish experience? It's not the same, I, I, I just, like, having been to football matches in, in England, specifically, and, and, in and in Italy, it's not the same, um, it is, it is, you know, because, the sports aren't the same. I get. I, I guess is the only way to explain it. Like, like during American football, you really only want to be loud when your team doesn't have the ball, and the other time you have to be quiet. And then after something good happens, then you yell. And then like, like the pressure in in European football is you are just constantly loud and you are constantly singing. And you are constantly standing, and. and that's just, like that's not how American football works. So so it's different. Like I understand your point. Like the culture is similar around it, but like the actual fan culture, the actual fan atmosphere in the stadium is is not quite the same. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think you draw like some interesting parallels that I think are are true. And like if you had to compare it to a American sport, I think you're right. But like the actual like lived experience of being at at a game like tailgating for an SEC game is nothing like you know going to drink at a pub 
you know, before a football match. It's just not the same vibe. Yeah, you get, to, you get to cook you know? meat. You get to cook meat. Like, that's, uh, what, that's awesome. You know, and then, like, being in the stadium is, like, it's just, again, the cultures, the fan cultures are very different. I mean, even, like, going to an MLS game versus a European game versus a South American game, like, it's just fucking different. Um, but I, I'm sorry you're a nerd and went to a stupid school. Well, you know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> And on that note, I think it's time to wrap it up. Um, do we guys have do we have any thoughts on West Ham? I know personally, if Gareth Bale scores a goal or a winner um, or does something amazing against West Ham, I think my soul is going to leave my body, and I'm going to have you know leave my wife a widow and my my son without a father. But do you guys have you any thoughts on this? To plant the last West Ham goal as an iconic moment. <laughs> How fucking dare you? How fucking dare you? <laughs> like. <laughs> You know, you should have to, like, fucking, like, carry, like, several videotapes of that goal across the Atlantic Ocean and apologize to Gareth Bale. That is an incredible goal. I'm going to be wearing my Tom, or Tom Carroll, Gareth Bale jersey. <laughs> Damn. I'm going to be wearing my Gareth Bale jersey, and I'm, so I'm going to be very excited. But um, if he doesn't play, I'll be very sad. So, whatever. Are we, I mean, West Ham have looked decent at times this year. Are we? What are we expecting? Yeah, they have been good, and it's they have a weird squad, and they have... A dumb manager and whatever, but they who doesn't to... really is he actually going to be in the stadium managing this time around? Yeah, I, I don't know. He, he had COVID and has not been in the stadium lately. Um, you know, but they have kind of fallen backwards into a system that works. Um, you know, their their front line is fairly dangerous. Um, they finally gotten Mark Noble out of the team, um, which is just adds so much by by subtraction. Um, you know, they're, they're not a bad team. Um, it's just weird because like they got rid of someone who I think you would have recognized as being probably their best attacker in Felipe Anderson or, or their best attacker last year or the year before. Uh, certainly one of the players that you looked at and was like, oh, they're, it's very dangerous. And then they're now kind of relying on Mikel Antonio to actually be their out and out striker as opposed to winger slash fullback yeah, striker. As opposed to guy who shows up against Spurs and vanishes for large portions of the rest of the season. Yeah. So so it's interesting. Like I, I, I don't really know I, I don't know how they've gotten to this point, but I think I think the main thing is like Ben said, is that they've somehow lucked into a functioning midfield with Declan Rice and, and Suchek. And and Jared Bowen has been very good since coming over from Hall. And yeah, I I, I don't no, nobody in their team like particularly impresses or scares me now that you know Anderson isn't isn't there and they don't really like it doesn't look like they've been started or they didn't start Yarmolenko against Leicester and Hilaire. Yeah, he doesn't play. Hilaire doesn't play. It's like the front if the lineup is is Mikel Antonio up top with Bowen and Fornals behind him. Um, and then Susek and Declan Rice. Um, and then Masawaku has been playing kind of like a left wing back, left winger kind of position. Um, but basically they're just very kind of run and gun. They don't have a lot of passers in the team. They have a strong defensive unit in midfield. They have, again, some good shot getters on the pitch. Bowen has been very good. And honestly, like kind of makes me annoyed that we missed out on him. Um, because he would have been a very reasonably priced signing. I mean, he's no Gareth Bale, but, um, you know. So, anyway, the point is, is, like, they're dangerous. But their back line kind of sucks. Their fullback situation's a mess. Um, 
They have a good goalkeeper, though. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's whatever. Yeah, but they've had a bad goalkeeper for years, and he just fucked us over every time we played him, so who fucking knows? Uh, you know, I mean, again, it's like, I think it's weird to feel this way because it's the first time I felt this way in a long time. I feel like we should be able to beat most teams in the league this season. Like, there's nobody I'm, like, really scared of right now. Like, yeah, I'm not going to bet on us to beat, like, Man City and Liverpool, but I don't think, like, it's beyond us, you know, to beat those teams. And I, I don't feel like I felt that way at all last season. Um, and so until until next week when we've shat the bet against West Ham <laughs> and I reverse course completely, I now feel like there's absolutely no reason we shouldn't. Look, if, if we're going to shit the bet against someone, could we just not do it against West Ham? That's all I'm asking. Um, I want to wrap it up. I missed one question that I think it would be interesting. I looked this up, and I'm curious what you guys think. Keith Winkle asked this, and then we'll wrap it up after this. Without looking at stats first, and I looked just so I can, we don't have to wait forever to get an answer to this, but I'm curious what you guys think. Guess how many yellow cards Eric Lamella has had while playing for Tottenham? Just, okay, the, really, just, just in the Premier League, just to be clear. We're not talking about like European competition. How, how many in the Premier League is it? Can, can you give us a clue and tell me how many Premier League matches he's played for us? Because he's um, got like 250-some-odd appearances. He's had 157 appearances in the Premier League. 157 appearances in the Premier League. Not all of those are starts, obviously. So the answer is obviously going to be something either stupid high or stupid low. Um, and I think, weirdly, it's going to be something that's weirdly low. You're going to venture, I guess. <laughs> I'm going to say 16. Ben? That's funny. I was going to say 6. <laughs> okay, you guys are way low. Um, oh. Eric Lavelle has. That's the point of the question. Is it 47, 95? Eric Lavelle has 27 yellow cards, which feels extremely low for a man with 215 fouls in the Premier League. Um, 16 wasn't that far off. No, that's, that's, that's off. So. A, little, a little less than. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very low. a dumb trivia question, honestly. Like, a question like that, right? It's either stupidly high or stupidly low, not like, that eh, seems about right. <laughs> like, that's not. <laughs> well, that seems about right. So, uh, I don't know. Lamella is surprisingly good at not getting himself set off. So. Well, he has yeah. no red cards for Spurs, nope, correct? None. None. Yeah. Which is insane. Now, part of that's because managers keep taking him off so he doesn't get sent off, but still. For a man who like likes to murder people, I mean, significantly less red cards than Hung Min Sun. That's very true. That's extremely true. Exactly what you would expect for a player like Eric Lavella. All right. Yeah. And on that note, I think it's time to wrap it up. Brian, where can people find you on the internet? Um, well, we already discussed LinkedIn, so you can find me on Twitter at Brian underscore Ashlock. That is Brian with a Y. And Ben, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, praising the vulture evil capitalists of the Premier League at Comrade Spurs. And you can find me on Twitter at Skipjack0079. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Um, we really need it. Um, you can talk about my surfer accent, which is something I apparently have on there. And, of course, you can find us all on LinkedIn at Brett Rainbow. Um, various spellings of it, but we're all there under the same name. So for Ben, for Brian... For myself, and of course for Brett Rainbow, I've been your host, Greg. Come on, you Spurs.